Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Cordell Robin Cocker is the co-founder and CEO of Carry First, a mobile games publisher that is focusing on the continent of Africa. So Africa is the last frontier for basically anything. Mobile gaming is no exception there. For a continent that is home to more than a billion millennials and Gen Zers, mobile gaming has never really picked up despite the continent witnessing rapid economic growth and smartphone adoption. So Carry First is changing that with its new approach for distribution and payments, custom made for Africa. In this episode with Cordell, we talk about mobile gaming in Africa and about Cordell's experiences as an entrepreneur on the journey of building his startup. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO Resources to get started. All right, we're live. Hi, Cordell. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Good thing. It's going to be an interesting discussion. I think you... You and your co-founders are building something super interesting uh, for a totally new space. Uh, so to kick this off, I, I still want to go into kind of like your origin story as an entrepreneur and your your sort of like journey into to the game industry and like how did you eventually found Carry First? Yeah, so I mean, I I have to start all the way from the beginning. I'm originally from Sierra Leone which is a, a tiny country in West Africa. I, I left when I was about six during the middle of a, of a civil war that lasted for about a decade um, and then grew up in the US, but all, always had um, a, a passion and, and a feeling of obligation that at some point I wanted to make my way back to Africa and see if I could be helpful in some way in the business and or like political realm. So, so there's, there's that angle. Um, but uh, I started my career in, in finance. I was an investment banker and then a private equity investor. Um, but, I, but I had always loved games growing up. I, um, my, my 
favorite gift growing up uh, was a Sega Genesis, which I got when I was probably seven years old. Um, my, my, one of my two best friends in the world, uh, we became friends over, you know, hundreds of games of Madden, um, on his bed and in our freshman dorm. Um, and, and I always sort of had a passion, but never really thought that it was realistic that I could have a career in gaming. Um, so I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I was working, living in Nigeria and investing a, a private equity fund. Um, and at some point, a, a friend of mine um, came to me with the idea to create HQ Trivia for Africa. Um, so, you know, HQ was this live competitive trivia game. Um, and, uh, and, and I thought for some reason that, that that would have like a ton of legs. We would create like hyper-localized questions uh, on a country by country basis um, and give out cash and, and everything would be great. Um, so, so interestingly, I, I actually quit my job to, to start that. Um, the, the game itself um, was not a very good game. Uh, as I've come to learn, game development is like an incredible uh, combination of like art and science. Um, but we had some success. We, we were the number one game in Nigeria, which is one of our top two markets for most of 2019. We had a few million downloads um, and we learned a lot about the industry. Um, and it was really from there that we learned that there was a better, there was a better place in the ecosystem and a more um, kind of scalable business that, that we could do that, that still served the African population, but, um, but that was in games. Nice. That's in very interesting. I, I sort of like, I think now that you're pursuing the African market with your, your new startup, can you introduce Carry First and what you guys do? Yeah, so Carry First is uh, a full stack publisher of, of mobile games focused on, on Africa. Um, so very simple, simply, we're the business arm of a game. Um, we work with studios around the world. Um, we have partners in Sweden and Bulgaria, the US, India, Ethiopia, um, and we, we license their games um, on a long-term basis. And, and our job is to uh, take it from, you know, a work of art or, or an, an awesome game and, and make it a business. So we handle distribution um, through the app stores and through alternative channels, um, live operations, um, monetization and, and customer service. And uh, we're about three years old now. Um, we just raised uh, our uh, $7 million Series A, which we announced about a month ago. And, uh, and yeah, we're, we're looking to, to really scale and, um, and, uh, and, and really kind of level up the industry across Africa. Right, right. I, I think most of the audience sort of like are very familiar with the sort of like a tier one market for gaming. Um, but like, I really want to hear from you about the, the gaming audience in Africa and uh, what are sort of like the different markets there and how has it been evolving in the, the recent years? Yeah, it's been, been growing really, really quickly. I think the first kind of basic orientation uh, when looking at Africa is that un unfortunately, it's, it's not kind of one homogenous body. Uh, it's, you know, 54 countries, 
um, multiple languages and different cultural nuance and so on. And so, um, you know, when, when you're approaching the region, you have to think about, you know, which countries you're gonna focus on and why. And so uh, our market or our target market is really eight countries um, across the region um, that make up uh, about 50% of the GDP uh, of all of Africa. And, and importantly, I think is probably like two thirds of the gaming opportunity. Um, the crazy thing about it is, is that they're thousands of miles apart. So, you know, Egypt would be in that group. So would South Africa, you know, the North and Southern tip, um, Nigeria on the West Coast, Kenya on the East. So uh, we've basically kind of made a market out of uh, a disparate, but, but like related uh, group of countries. Um, you know, though that, that group of countries is growing really, really quickly. Um, so the fastest growing population in the world at about two and a half percent per year. Um, some probably the second fastest growing region in the world economically behind emerging Asia. Um, and importantly, um, there's like a rapid, rapid adoption of smartphones um, and like incredible engagement online. So you're looking at like 50% year over year Kager, growth Kagers in mobile data um, growth. Um, and, uh, and you've got basically the fastest growing countries when you look at games downloads um, in, our, in our top eight. Nice, nice. Like you guys are focusing on building these two different inter interfaces to the African market. You have the game publishing, but you're also looking at the, the payments layer uh, for these games and the consumers who are downloading these games. Can you talk about how you are solving the payments in a continent which lacks sort of like the credit card holders and there's a lot of fragmentation on the payment side? Yeah. So the cool thing is that uh, adoption of digital payments and, and penetration of digital payment methods in Africa is as high uh, as Western Europe and, and the United States, right? It's, it's, in the, it's in the 90s as far as percentages. Um, the challenge is the mix. Um, so only uh, basically less than 25% of, of that mix is credit cards. Um, and of that, uh, less than half of that are internationally accepted. Um, and so what that means is that uh, for content, particularly mobile, which rests on, um, you know, credit card infrastructure for payments, you know, most of our users um, can't purchase. So out of every 10 willing payer with the disposable income, with the appetite that's trying to make a payment, we'll typically see eight or nine um, fail for, for one reason or another. Um, and so what, what we're looking to do is basically bridge all of these digital payment methods, which people are using, things like mobile money, instant bank transfer, QR codes, um, getting a pin or a voucher at a retail location, which people are using in the, in the real world, and, and, and pairing that and making it accessible for content. And so, you know, we, we've built our own payment system where we've aggregated uh, a several gateways that provide all of the most commonly used methods. 
Um, and they're kind of like two ways that that engages uh, with a piece of content. So the first is we can integrate directly into uh, a game, whether native or web, um, via a couple APIs and, um, and a user can access our payments platform directly. Um, that works for alternative distribution, everything basically outside of the Google and Apple ecosystem, um, which in the West is like almost zero, but um, in frontier markets in China, there are very, very big alternative sort of Android ecosystems. Um, and the second is we've developed what's called a top-up shop, um, which we kind of stole from Southeast Asia. And top-up shop is just simply an e-commerce interface where you go to buy digital goods. Um, if you think about buying a game on Steam, um, think about that, um, but expanded to almost anything that can be fulfilled online. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's really what we've built. Um, and, and it's there really to give people access, basically democratize access to in-game and, and in-app content. Mm -hmm. I, I want to double click on, on this payment, uh, sort of like the future of payments. Ha have you seen like cryptocurrencies like getting adopted in the African sort of like populace? What, what are sort of like the figures there? Do you see it going into gaming soon? We, we do, um, there's an incredible adoption of, of crypto uh, on the continent. Um, so I don't have the statistic, but I know that at one point, Nigeria was the um, second largest Bitcoin market from both a volumes um, and a value standpoint behind, behind the US um, as, as a single anecdote. And, and the reason why, is that um, cross-border exchange of currency is incredibly difficult. Um, the, the US dollar uh, is kind of the universal currency of trade um, and that creates a lot of problems. So if I'm in Nigeria and I wanna buy you know, raw sugar from Brazil, um, I have to basically go from Naira to dollar and, and then to dollars and then dollars to Riyadh. Um, and so it means that anything you want from anywhere in the world, you know, whether it's packaging for, for your factory or anything, you, you, have, to, you have to find dollars. Um, and so there's like an incredible um, sort of shortage of dollars and, and people have uh, a hard time really sort of moving in and out of certain currencies. So, um, you know, enter crypto which creates basically like a third medium of exchange um, that people value on, on all sides. Um, and so people have really, really um, taken to crypto primarily as a medium of exchange, um, mm -hmm. which is probably its first use case, but now we're seeing uh, a, whole, a whole wider range of, of use cases. What, what are you sort of like betting on? Like, when do you see that in gaming then? It's, re it's really interesting. I I've been talking to people about it uh, a fair amount over the last week. My, I would say a week ago, uh, I would have said uh, that Africa will be probably toward the back of the pack with regard to adoption of, um, you know, tokenized virtual assets, so NFTs and so on. Um, I thought about it as like kind of a luxurious, um, you know, issue um, and one that would be sort of led in, in, the, in the first world. 
Um, I, I recently uh, read up on uh, on a platform in I think the Philippines um, where that's basically doing uh, leveraging cryptocurrency to create a platform uh, where it's sort of play to earn. Um, and so now you have people who are leveraging their time, uh, who are grinding in games um, and earning money via NFTs in the game. Um, they, can, they can sell those, they can bid on them. Um, and, then, and then ultimately they can transfer uh, out into fiat if, if they need or if they want to. Um, and a concept like that, I think would just like crush uh, in, in the region um, because you have like a ton of ingenuity, you have a super, super like digital savvy, young, hungry population. And ostensibly our users have more time than money, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about like the first iteration of NFTs, which is like go on to a, you know, a virtual store and buy things for a lot of money because to make you feel special, I don't really see that as a core use case, but I do see some of the like more intertwined um, and like more like gamified and game centric uh, elements being potentially really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to touch base on, on the, the game publishing side. So what kind of games do work in Africa? Can you, can you talk about some of the examples? Yeah. So one of the cool things that, that we learned um, is that uh, Africans don't need their own content. Um, and that was one of the things that uh, both sort of scared us and excited us. Um, you know, we were making our, our own games. They were hyper-localized from a cultural standpoint. The content was all, um, you know, super, super local and contextual. Um, and what we learned by engaging with, with gamers over a couple of years is that for the most part, they, they want to play the same games uh, as my, my friends play in the US um, and the UK and, and, and so on. So, um, you know, if you look at top charts, uh, you, you'll see similar names pop up. You know, you'll, you'll see your, your big casual puzzle games, your play rigs games, your king games. You'll see your first person shooters. Um, you'll see, you know, some of the big social casino games. Um, but I think the, the, the few like key nuances that I think are really important. One uh, is that if you want to reach a mass market audience, you have to be very conscientious about um, device requirement, right? Um, you know, over 90% uh, of, you know, new phones sold in the region are Android. Um, and in order to get the cost down, uh, there are a lot of sort of um, reductions in storage capacity, processing um, that, that exist in sort of lower end Android phones. And so, you know, what it means is it's really, it's a big investment for someone to download a two or three gigabyte game, right? To download Fortnite on Android that will cost someone a very, very significant amount of, uh, of data that will occupy a very, very significant portion of the storage on their phone. And, and that's, like a, that's like a proper trade-off that a person has to make in the region, whereby, you know, in the West, yeah, I, I have my phone, I download every game that I can think of, never think about, you know, storage, 
um, and and data is like you know turning on the faucet, right? You don't think about it; it just it just flows. Um, so I do think you know if we're as we're gonna look publish games that reach like massive massive adoption, I do th I think there are gonna be games that are uh, well built uh, from a resource management standpoint um, that uh, work well online and offline um, that work in like variable connectivity. Um, and so, you know, I think about, um, you know, one of my, like the best examples I think are Supercell's games. Um, like if you, people have probably never thought about it, but they, uh, work incredibly well, uh, in low connect with low connectivity speeds. If you lose a connection, you can basically fire up a, uh, uh, an, an instance again in a split second uh, and get right back in the middle of a game that you're in. Um, things like that, you know, people don't really think about in the West, but is incredibly valuable with regard to like the quality of gameplay um, in a place where you can go from 4G to 3G to 2G to offline and back, just like driving down a road, right? Um, so, so, so I think, you know, accessibility, um, and like the, the sort of quality and conscientiousness of resource management um, is something that game developers should, should be thinking about if they're looking to really like penetrate the region. Nice. Um, like I was talking to the R investors and they brought up Arena as an example of a games operator um, who's do, done this kind of amazing job with their games in different markets. Like, can you talk about some of the similarities and differences between Carry First and Garena. Yeah, um, Garena is, in many ways is really kind of our, our, our North Star uh, platform and, and company. Um, so the, the similarities, I think, start with, with our markets. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we're uh, really focused on about eight countries in the region. Um, they're focused on a similar size region seven countries, um, very similar in size as far as like economic. Um, they're both like a couple trillion dollars of GDP. Um, there's a certain level of fragmentation um, as far as like language, but there are some common threads uh, across the different countries culturally, um, as well as some of the challenges which you have to like structurally overcome. So. You know, Southeast Asia is is easily the the most similar market um, to our our focus market. Um, and if you look at Southeast Asia seven or eight years ago, when Garena was just starting to scale, it's like it's a splitting image of of where we are today. Um, so so we, we we have a very similar market. Um, I think we're we're both we both started with uh, publishing third party games. Um, which I think is is a is the way to start as a regional publisher, um, and importantly, in order to like serve our our customers and in order to overcome some of the core challenges, we've both had to build some of our own infrastructure, um, and particularly around payments. So um, they also built their own payment system um, and leveraged it to uh, be able to monetize games better for partners than, than they could do themselves. Um, so I would say, I would say those are the, the main similarities. Um, 
you know, the biggest difference is obviously they, they moved into e-commerce um, at some point and built a really, really powerful business um, there. We're not particularly focused on physical goods. Um, we, we are focused, we call it digital commerce, which is like anything which can be both purchased and fulfilled remotely. Um, and our belief is that as more goods and services move from the physical world to the digital, um, that you know the leader, the dominant player in digital commerce uh, basically could be the Amazon of Africa, right? Mm. That like, instead of buying t-shirts, uh, as your primary means, you, you know, you'll be buying skins uh, and you'll be buying virtual gifts for your friends online, right? So I would say that's probably the biggest difference. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Like, like the thing is like the continent will continue evolving and you guys are there sort of like capturing like what's going to happen. Like, and yeah, I, I don't see any kind of like, yeah, I don't see any kind of like, you know, overnight delivery being the thing it's more about the, the the digital side of things for sure yeah hey uh one certain question that comes up immediately to my mind when i think about gaming in in africa I, I, there must be the local developers like what do you see sort of like the local developers creating games for a local audience is that sort of like delivering results i would say um it's early uh, and, and mixed. Um, the developer community in the region, uh, I would say is kind of small but mighty. Um, there, we're still in the early stages where it's really just, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them hobbyists, but people who aren't necessarily um, equipped or, or have you know, the financial means to uh, build out a team to uh, do it full time, quit their jobs, um, and to to leverage the the, the global resources um, fully. So you you have a, a lot of like really small indie developers, and I'm talking like one to five person teams um, that are making that are making interesting games. Um, but the ecosystem is very 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 early. Um, you know, one of the things that we want to do, and it's not our core focus, but it, we think it's important, is to help to catalyze um, the developer ecosystem in Africa. So, you know, our first game, which we licensed, is a, is a sort of modern version of Mancala called Gabetta. Um, and, and that is created by an Ethiopian uh, indie studio called Kenne Games. And, and really they're looking to take, you know, an ancient classic board game, um, apply, you know, classic, you know, free to play gaming, uh, you know, me mechanisms and, and graphics and then, and then go global. So I think, I think most of your developers in the region are, are looking primarily to build things that can go global. Um, there are a couple players that have made some like really, really good classic um, games. Typically they're like ver digital versions of, um, you know, offline games. So board games, dice card games, which are, are played locally. Um, and, and they have like really good sort of social elements to them. Um, often things like, um, 
you know, local multiplayer, um, which I think is a huge opportunity in the region because, you know, people like, even though they're playing on their phones, people like to kind of hang out, right? So sitting in your living room, pairing over Bluetooth um, and, and playing a game, you know, you don't have to use data. Uh, you get all of this sort of direct social elements. Um, we've seen things like that work really well in Japan um, and Korea. And, and, I, and I think there's a massive play there. Um, in the region. Nice. That's really cool. Like then, then sort of like you mentioned free to play there. How do you make CAC to LTV work? If you want to drive user acquisition, uh, you want to see the return on that investment. How, how does that work nowadays? That's a very, very important question. Um, look, that is really at the core of, of our publishing service. The, the reason why you haven't seen um, like extraordinary growth um, in in free to play in the adoption of free to play games is because most companies aren't marketing in Africa, um, and the reason why they're not marketing is because they're not seeing a return on ad spend typically, mm. um, and a lot of it is tied back to the payments issue, which which I spoke about. Um, you know, if users if users can't pay for content, um, it's very they look unprofitable. Uh, to a developer, so developer doesn't, you know, spend any UA dollars there, and you have uh, sort of general um, suppressed demand. Um, and so, you know, we 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 look at it from from both ends. One, um, we think uh, having you know bespoke local payments will allow you to multiply LTV. Um, you think if nine out of ten people who want to pay for content can't. Um, and we can convert, you know, a third of those um, through uh, our ecosystem. You're now quadrupling uh, your LTV uh, of, of a cohort of users in a particular game, right? So, like, this is it gets to be quite powerful math um, because it's it's about accessibility. Um, and then, look on on the um, on the UA side of things, um, it's really two things, like localizing uh, creative um, in particular. So having um, messaging uh, that really resonates with our users, leveraging local slang, leveraging local influencers, um, and, and really using that to drive down cost of acquisition and drive up IPMs, um, I think has been probably the most powerful lever. And we've seen, you know, between using um, kind of classic, let's say, gameplay creative um, versus leveraging uh, local, like even fairly underground influencers. Um, we've seen, you know, on average, like a 50% uh, increase in IPMs uh, from the former to the latter. So, um, you know, the short answer is we work on we work on it from both sides of the equation. Um, and every game is a little bit different, particularly with regard to how it monetizes, but also like there's a major difference in, in how you can acquire users and, and the UA sort of capabilities of, of a game. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's why we think it's important to be a full stack publisher because um, we, can give you, we can give you payments, but if you don't work on the UA side, you, you may be missing a trick. Right. I want to double click on that a bit. Like, uh, is that an area where you see 
that carry first is sort of like, you know, developing the process the most is exactly like figuring out the best models, uh, improving the conversion of, you know, like you said, nine out of 10 can't pay. And basically like, what are the challenges there that you're seeing at the moment? Look, the, the biggest challenge uh, at the moment uh, is really finding intuitive ways to link alternative payments with um, mobile first content, yeah. right? Um, you know, if you look at India, the way that they've done it um, is by uh, integrating those payments directly into Android applications and then, and then publishing those Android applications via websites. So what's called, you know, sideloading or direct downloads um, of games. That, that requires, that solves the linkage, right? Now you've got local payments and you've got content, same app, seamless experience. It's all beautiful. Um, yeah. But the, the challenge is on the user acquisition side. People have to know where to find uh, these, you know, Android applications. They have to be comfortable downloading them um, as opposed to going to a traditional app store. Um, and it requires a level of, you know, education and behavioral change. So, so that's one way to do it. You know, we've, we've looked at that. We think there will be an element of like proprietary distribution, but it's not, it's not our bread and butter. The other way is basically to say a native app's a native app. Um, but uh, as we've seen kind of with Epi Epic and Apple, um, a user is independent of the particular interface that they're using a game. So, you know, Apple says, look, you want to use another payment method to, to top up your account? Like do it, like go wherever you want, go online, go to use another payment method, but you can't tell anyone about it in this app, right? And yeah. <laughs> right, like, like, oh yeah, you can use it. You can use anything you want, but, but, but you can't educate your users on it um, yeah. in, in, in this interface. Um, and so, you know, what, what we've done and what we're, what we think will, will work really well and scale is, is creating a, a consumer hub um, in browser where users know they can go and, and find in-app and in-game content. Um, so it, it sort of solves the education process. You can still work with Google and Apple as core distribution systems. You can still leverage all their security, um, all the developer tools, and, and they can still be a partner to you. Um, but for those specific users that just literally cannot pay, right, you give them an, an alternative. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to switch gears here a bit and talk about your founder journey. Uh, can you talk about some of the lessons you've learned from being a founder? Yeah. So the number one lesson is that being a founder is incredibly difficult. It is easily the most difficult thing I've done in my life. And um, I don't think people talk about it enough. Um, it's one of those like, founder to founder things where you kind of know that everyone's struggling and, and that it's a grind. Um, so it's really hard. Um, and so the question is in that backdrop of trying to create something that's never existed before, um, putting all your you know, social and political capital on it, 
um, living day to day, living and dying sometimes by a single meeting or conference call uh, or customer or app release, you know, how, how do you, how do you sort of navigate that successfully without like losing your mind and, and like achieving what you want to do? Um, and I think the, the first thing that I learned is that um, the number one job of a founder is to manage yourself and particularly to manage your own psyche. Um, like I've done a lot of intensive work on myself. I've like gotten a coach. I like read a bunch of books. Um, and it's really all about like, how do you maintain a certain level of like inner peace and like mental clarity in the middle of a storm? right? It's a, it's a learned practice, right? It's, you don't have it or not. It's learned and, and that's good because it means that you can develop it over time and become a better um, you know, founder and, and person. Um, so that's number one, manage your own psyche. I think the second is get help. Um, I think in the beginning, founders often fall into like an incredible fallacy, which is that like their idea is special. Um, and so they want to keep it to themselves or they want to keep it in like a small group of people. Like your idea is not special. Um, and if telling someone about it uh, allowed them to be able to usurp you, then like uh, it also is not defensible, right? Or, or you're not the right person to do it. So, you know, get out there, talk to people who have worked in the industry, get a co-founder, get two co-founders, ideally, and like make sure that you have people with complementary skills who care deeply about you and about what you're doing and, and, and that you're not like on an island. Um, and then the third thing is honestly just about like grit and perseverance and, uh, and just like keep going, right? Like some days are awful, just like go to sleep early and then come back tomorrow, right? Like, uh, don't quit. There, there often is a light at the tunnel, at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, I think like one of the best sort of founder, like life approach, like lessons that I've, I've read up on or sort of like the concept that I picked up from Naval Ravikant who, who like talked about this on one of his podcasts is like reading sort of like all work, all projects, what you're doing as, as experiments. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you do an experiment in a lab and you see the results and you learn from them like an, like an iterative process. And then, then you go to the next thing, sort of like what Thomas Edison talks about as well, about like trying to invent the light bulb. Like there was 10,000 different attempts and uh, yes. The 10,001, like finally uh, <laughs> provided the light bulb. Uh, but it's very messy and it's hard to always think about it. But, but I sort of like think about this like approach that if you treat work as a series of experiments, it's not that hard if that, you know, that one client you miss out on that or you don't get to raise the big funding round or, you know, the investor pulls out at the last minute. It was, if you still treat those ex as experiments, it's like, that's what it's all about. And you're sort of like learning from them and you keep going. A hundred percent. Me and my co-founders uh, use the analogy of a sandbox. Um, when, when things, uh, when things get like, really, really hard or really crazy or something turns really, you know, south, we, we just say like, all right, this is cool. Now we're going to learn how 
uh, we're gonna practice basically how you deal with like an insane situation where X, Y, or Z happened. Um, it's a it's a it's a sandbox. It's a, a, a sort of a, a little cocoon of experimentation and and trial, and and it makes things seem less monumental, um, which in reality is true, but it's hard to like maintain that perspective when when you're like in in the middle of it and when you care so much. Yeah, I think, you know, your your beautiful idea is always very monumental sort of like <laughs> thing, especially in gaming. I, I've fallen to that fallacy a lot. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to touch base with you also on, on the fundraising because you've gone through the VC route now. You're pretty far with raising $7 million. Uh, what was the, the right approach that led you to raise from VCs? Fundraising um, has been a journey and has evolved significantly from from when we started until now. Um, I would say in the beginning, it was really easy, even though I thought it was really hard. Um, The the rejection um, I took way, way too personally in the beginning. Um, but, But in earnest, you know, the first million dollars three years ago, was like pretty easy. Um, it's people who know you, they care about you, they think you're smart, and they're like, all right, if you're gonna go do this, I'll be supportive. Um, after that, before you've like hit product market fit, before you have true clarity of like what the company should be, but you're trying to fund, it's incredibly difficult. So I probably, we probably spent over a year raising just over $2 million. Um, in 2019 and we closed in early 2020 um and it's very 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 depressing uh and it's a massive distraction so the the a round um i would say was somewhere in between um but i think went pretty well like we're, we're pretty happy with how it went um and i think you know there 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 are a few things which we learned and which we did i think um, one, you just have to understand that fundraising is a, it's a numbers game and it's a, it's a, it's a probabilistic game. Um, and there is like some fixed conversion percentage based on your idea, based on your traction and based on like your ability to communicate. And like, you don't know what that percentage is. You don't know whether it's 1% or 7%. But the only way to increase your chances of conversion on the back end is to talk to more people, right? So, so, so the first thing is like draw up a really, really, really long list of potential investors um, and go wider than you think you should. Um, so, so that was the first thing. I think the second thing is to be prepared. Um, have your materials, uh, have your pitch. Um, go over, like build a data room before anyone asks you about it, build a model, even though you know that like you have no idea what, what things are going to look like, you know, numerically in, in two years. Um, but just make sure you're prepared. And then the final thing is like run a process. Um, we, we made the, the mistake before of just talking to investors and, and like half, I call it halfway fundraise, like don't halfway fundraise, like go all out, have a process, have a timeline, talk to everyone at the exact same time. And, and, 
and force people to make decisions, right? Because if you don't, people will happily turn over another card uh, in perpetuity until you know you go bankrupt or until someone else um, backs you and they can say, oh, well, that investor backed them, they must be good. Now I wanna follow, right? Like you, you, you kind of have to force the action a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, like people who really believe in what you're doing will, will step to the plate. Um, and so, you know, we've been really fortunate, um, you know, this round we, we had Convoy, Convoy Ventures um, lead and they had incredible conviction. They had a history on the continent, even, even though they're all Americans. Um, and, and, and they just kind of like put it on the line and said like, look, we want to lead it. And, and, and like, here's what we're willing to do. And, and once you get the first one, every, everything else kind of falls in, into place, right? Mm. Um, and so we've been fortunate, you know, we, we have Riot Games in this round, we have Akatsuki, um, Rain Ventures, and, and we're, we're really just like quite excited about the investor group um, and, uh, and about being funded, of course. Mm, yeah, man, there's so much lessons there for founders, for sure. Uh, hey, I got some final questions for you, Cordell. Um, All right. What's what, what's what's your favorite book and why? So I would say I have two favorite books. The first is called The Undoing Project, um, and it's about two Israeli psychologists, Amos Sversky and Daniel Kahneman. Um, they're the basically architects or or sort of creators of the of uh, behavioral economics um, and. I love that book, one, because it's like an awesome narrative. Um, it charts like multiple wars in Israel, them, you know, flying back from the U.S. and when they're in their 40s and putting on their old jumpsuit and like getting ready to like jump back into war. Um, it's all it also is like all about behavioral economics, which I find to be endlessly fascinating. Um, and uh, and I think it's just like a really fun read. I've read it a couple of times. Um, the other one is, is the hard thing about hard things, um, which is kind of like my, my startup Bible. Um, mm. And it's just like fundamentally about, you know, how you navigate uh, a world where, where there are no easy answers. Right. Mm. Uh, and, and that's, that's the most, I would say, unifying um, characteristic of startup life. Um, and it's, it's just like a, it's a great book, um, uh, about that and, and for startup founders. It is, it is so awesome. It's sort of like the, the horror story, but then like <laughs> pulling through. Well, it is. It exactly. Is, yeah. Hey, Cordell, do, do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? Yeah, this, this is a, a challenging question, um, because I've worked with, a lot of really, really interesting people. Um, I've worked directly for multiple billionaires. I've like now worked in a very, very dynamic and small uh, environment. But I think um, maybe one story I think like uh, helps help to shape the way I approach work. So, you know, I graduated undergrad in 2008 um, and I went to go work in an investment bank and I thought that I was really cool and I was going to make tens of millions of dollars and it was going to be really awesome. Um, and when I hit 
at my desk in the middle of 08, uh, basically like a month or two later, the entire financial world um, collapsed. Um, and uh, the people around me who were incredibly confident and wealthy and knew everything, you know, the summer before when I was an intern, um, suddenly had these like white, you know, ashen looks on their faces and just had like, you know, the Morgan Stanley stock ticker on, on both of their screens and like were thinking about how they were gonna pay for private school. Um, and, um, you know, fortunately I was young enough at, that, I, that I didn't really um, understand or, or the implications of it weren't as significant because I hadn't like built up a lifestyle uh, on the back of um, this wave. Um, but I think going through that um, really taught me a couple of things. One is like, you know, nothing is permanent, right? Everything goes in waves, everything goes in cycles. Um, don't sort of ever believe that this is the way it is and like, it's not gonna change, right? Like there's, there's this kind of classic phrase of like, this time is different, right? This bull market is different because now, you know, we have computers uh, and then you have like a massive crash, right? Um, and so, you know, my approach is really kind of to like not take things too seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, don't necessarily take the environment or the ecosystem or the industry that you're in too seriously um, because everything can change. And like at the end of the day, like all that matters is like, you know, who you are, uh, how you're able to maintain uh, a sense of like peace and purpose um, and like almost every other variable around you can change. And, and like my career has basically like demonstrated that, right? I've like worked in high finance in New York and London. Um, I've been an investor in a frontier market and now uh, I'm a startup founder in, in the gaming industry that I didn't even know existed uh, four years ago <laughs> and happens to be worth, you know, $100 billion. So, um, so it's really just to kind of like play it by ear, um, mm. work hard, have fun, and like don't take things too seriously. Yeah, man, that's, that's really good. Hey, final question. Uh, if there's developers out there who want to sort of like explore the continent, uh, launch their game in Africa, ex explore that possibility. What's the best way to get in contact with you? The, the best way is, uh, is on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. So my LinkedIn handle is CordellRC. Um, I check it more frequently than everything else. So uh, that, that's definitely the best way to get in contact. Hey, this was so much fun. Uh, and very insightful. And I, I think the founder discussions with a fellow founder is always very, very insightful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been been my pleasure. Right. Hey, take care, Cordell. See ya. Thanks Bye -bye. a lot. Take care. Bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. 
And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.